Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast. Today we study Alexander Stevens' infamous cornerstone speech. I apologize for the delay. Today's episode is a difficult one for me. It's, it's going to involve quoting some extremely racist material. All I can say is that these are absolutely the words of the man involved. In no way do I condone or agree with the statements of Alexander Stevens on the subject of slavery, and his statements are deeply offensive. All the same, I must repeat them so you, the audience, can understand what he said and why it is important. The man should be judged by his own words, and the Confederacy that he created judged by them also. Stevens evidently felt no shame in saying these things at the time, and it's important not to hide this truth, his truth. We have discussed Alexander Stevens a fair bit on this podcast. He was an important man in the decades leading up to the Civil War. Yet he is also a figure often left out of the story entirely, a fact he might enjoy and find ironic at the same time. Alexander Stevens became the oddly chosen architect of the Confederacy. And yet he did not lead the secession movement and did not lead the Confederacy. As we've mentioned in some previous episodes, he was a Southern Whig of considerable influence and reputation. Whether at home in Georgia or in the District of Columbia, he exerted considerable power upon Washington politics. He held a great deal of respect among Whigs and later former Whigs, at least in the South. And although deeply pro-slavery, he was also staunchly national in outlook instead of sectional. His views reflected Clay's vision of a developing and modern nation much more than Jeffersonian small-r republicanism, or even the younger Jacksonian politics that still held broad cultural sway. More than that, he was quite divorced from Calhoun's desire to form a kind of party within a party, and a regional movement within the United States. And yet, his deep, perhaps even dangerous, pro-slavery beliefs would eventually lead him to the same place as Calhoun. This brings us to Robert Toombs. Now, the contrast between these two senators can hardly be exaggerated. Alexander Stevens was physically small and unimposing, with a boyish face and frail health. Although exceptionally intelligent, he was also more of a manager than a leader. He proved particularly skilled at the business of political diplomacy, or smoothing over personal differences. But Stevens' colleague Robert Toombs, on the other hand, was, well, erratic and temperamental. Fiery seems to crop up frequently in descriptions of the man. Toombs was loud, energetic, bombastic, and perhaps a little flighty. He drank heartily, frequently, and freely. Yet he was always physically strong and able-bodied. Stevens appeared to shrink down into himself, whereas Toombs seemed ready to burst out of his skin. Despite this stark contrast, Stevens and Toombs worked rather well together. They were both Georgia men, loyal to Whig Party principles, and adopted positions that were far less radical than Southern Democrats. Although they supported slavery in Kansas vigorously, they had some willingness to compromise on the issue. And both men stayed at least nominally loyal to the Union until almost the last minute. However, that loyalty waned over the 1850s after the self-inflicted blow of Kansas-Nebraska wrecked the Whig Party. Both men then joined the Democrats, essentially the only party available in the South anymore. This led Toombs into slowly aligning himself with the secessionist line, which to some degree gave him the respect he craved. This would also prove a critical moment in the path to the Confederacy, 
because Toombs was slowly working on bringing Stevens around. Jumping ahead a bit. In the aftermath of Lincoln's election in December of 1860, Abraham Lincoln wrote a personal letter to Stevens, whom he knew and respected, to seek his help in calming the situation. Lincoln suggested that the problem was, in essence, the passions of an exciting moment. He hoped that Stevens might help calm people down. Stevens' reply may have struck Lincoln like a thunderbolt. Even acknowledging that he knew Lincoln wasn't going to try to interfere with slavery in the South, a courtesy Southerners were openly pledging that they would never have returned were the situation reversed, Stevens wrote, We at the South do think African slavery, as it exists with us, both morally and politically right. This opinion is founded upon the inferiority of the black race. You, however, and perhaps a majority of the North think it wrong. Admit the difference of opinion. Yes, that was a direct quote from a personal letter of Stevens to Lincoln, and not necessarily meant for public consumption. The reason this was so concerning lay in the fact that it allowed no real compromise at all. Even Alexander Stevens was effectively defending secession and allowing no possible resolution. Events would prove that Republicans were willing, if not very happy, to bargain. But they had political, moral, and ideological limits. Stevens, Alexander Stevens, was now saying that he couldn't accept any limits or bargains or compromise of his own. Elsewhere in the letter, he explicitly compared the institution of slavery to religion, and identified it as an aspect of society so important that no tolerance of differences was possible for him. Of course, that was also rather strange, given the United States managed to overcome great differences in religious toleration as well. At this time, however, Stevens also hung back on the issue of secession until Georgia voted for it in their secession convention in January of 1861. Now, for such a supposedly overwhelming political force, a sizable minority favored delay over action. A few more votes against immediate secession might have changed the course of history in this moment. Stevens himself was present as a delegate and actually voted against the measure, but the majority carried. The reason history itself may have shifted was that in the aftermath of the vote, Robert Toombs went to see Stevens in person. His goal was to persuade Stevens to lend his considerable talents for the secessionist cause. Toombs succeeded, and from that moment, Alexander Stevens went forth to build a Southern Confederacy. Now, each state in the early Confederacy had its own interests and its own leaders with their own preferences, and these were only roughly aligned. But Stevens was poised to perfectly place a political plank, and in a very short amount of time, he worked out just about everything. His influence may have been decisive, for he capably moved issues to and fro, not to immediately settle all problems, but to build consensus so that the problems could eventually be resolved. Stevens more or less wrote the Confederate Constitution, although this mostly meant copying that of the United States. He was proud of his revisions, though, as we will see. Certainly, at several key moments in the process, he moved the delegates in the right direction at the right time and he made sure that no single point stuck matters into a bind. In contrast to the difficult negotiations to align the colonies leading up to the Declaration of Independence, or the six-month-long Constitutional Convention in 1787, the Confederacy practically sailed through matters. And in the process, Stevens was not so overly loyal to his friends as to harm the Confederate cause. For example, 
when Toombs proved unsuitable as the first president, Stevens also helped select a replacement. This, of course, brings us to Jefferson Davis and his inaugural address. But what is often forgotten is that Alexander Stevens would quickly be selected as the first vice president of the Confederacy. This takes us finally to the main topic of today, the infamous Cornerstone speech. Stevens delivered the speech in Savannah, Georgia, on March 21st of 1861 to an assembled crowd of notables. The timing is somewhat interesting, since it places his speech right in the middle period between the inauguration of both Davis and Lincoln and the bombardment of Fort Sumter in April. It reveals a confident, or perhaps overconfident, Stevens, who frankly has little to say on the subject of revolution, war, or the great historical movements. He has much to say about domestic policy and, in particular, the topic of slavery and its place in the Confederacy. In retrospect, there is a chilling credulity to his speech. At no point does Stevens seem to have ever seriously grappled with what he himself is saying or its mortal meaning. Now, compared to Jefferson Davis's inaugural address, this is a much longer speech, and we are having to cut down considerably the material to focus in on the most important factors. Now, to begin with, Alexander Stevens opens with some general introductory comments before getting to the point, and I'm going to leave a lot of that out. Here is where the meat of the speech begins. I was remarking that we are passing through one of the greatest revolutions in the annals of the world. Seven states have, within the last three months, thrown off an old government and formed a new. This revolution has been signally marked up to this time by the fact that it's having been accomplished without the loss of a single drop of blood. All the essentials of the old constitution, which have endeared it to the hearts of the American people, have been preserved and perpetuated. Some changes have been made, uh, some of these I should have preferred not to have seen made, but other important changes do meet my cordial approbation. They form great improvements upon the old constitution. Stevens here opens by explaining how the new Confederate Constitution attempts to balance competing state interests by avoiding central expenditures for internal improvements. He also discusses with some pride how Georgia built its own improvements, which presumably went over well with an audience of mostly George men. Stevens, as a former Whig, does not seem to have been so opposed to such improvements as he implies here. But secession had been much stronger among Southern Democrats, and they tended to be dead sent against the idea, so this was a useful argument in context. However, Stephen goes on to discuss the changes to the Confederate structure of government. Another change in the Constitution relates to the length of the tenure of the presidential office. In the new Constitution, it is six years instead of four, and the president rendered ineligible for a re-election. This is certainly a decidedly conservative change. It will remove from the incumbent all temptation to use his office or exert the powers confided to him for any objects of personal ambition. Uh, now, to clarify, Stevens more or less does actually describe pretty accurately at least the changes, if not necessarily the results. And there were additional ones which I won't get into. Uh, for example, the new constitution, he does describe this, grants non-voting seats to cabinet ministers uh, with the intent that they could then speak on the floor of the Confederate Congress, argue for policies, or otherwise try to guide the presumably permanent new nation. Although not described here, Stevens had also given the executive a line-item veto. The sum total of these would be to grant the Confederate president enormous power, but at the price of limiting the officeholder to a single term. 
This would actually prove somewhat decisive because it actually inhibits political organization. Curiously, this may have been a bit of self-dealing on Alexander Stevens' part. By limiting the first president to a single term in office, he made sure that it would necessarily become vacant in six years' time. By then, Stephen himself could be in a position to claim it, or perhaps he could swing it to a candidate of his preference. His intentions here are unknown, or at least unclear to me, but it would have had the example of John Adams, the first United States vice president, who also followed George Washington into the White House. If this was true, it was an ironic twist, for John Adams had been a Boston lawyer firmly opposed to slavery. But he wasn't the only founding father to come under Stephen's scrutiny. For now, Stephen's cuts to the heart of the matter. Speaking of those men, the founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson and other slave owners among them, Stevens lays out, at last, his case for a Southern Confederacy. And again, this is quoting directly and unchanged from Alexander Stevens' own pen. They are not my words. The prevailing ideas entertained by him and most of the leading statesmen of the time of the formation of the old Constitution were that the enslavement of the African was in violation of the laws of nature, that it was wrong in principle, socially, morally, and politically, it was an evil they knew not well how to deal with, but the general opinion of the men of that day was that somehow or other, in the order of providence, the institution would be evanescent and pass away. Those ideas, however, were fundamentally wrong. They rested upon the assumption of the equality of races. This was an error. It was a sandy foundation, and the government built upon it fell when the storm came and the wind blew. Our new government is founded upon exactly the opposite idea. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests, upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery and subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. This, our new government, is the first in the history of the world based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. Many who hear me, perhaps, can recollect well that this truth was not generally admitted, even within their day. The errors of the past generation still clung to many as late as twenty years ago. Those at the North, who still cling to these errors with a zeal above knowledge we justly denominate fanatics. All fanaticism springs from an aberration of the mind, from a defect in reasoning. It is a species of insanity." In the conflict thus far, success has been on our side, complete throughout the length and breadth of the Confederate States. It is upon this, as I have stated, our social fabric is firmly planted, and I cannot permit myself to doubt the ultimate success of a full recognition of this principle throughout the civilized and enlightened world. Many governments have been founded upon the principle of the subordination and serfdom of certain classes of the same race. Such were and are in violation of the laws of nature. Our system commits no such violation of nature's laws. With us, all of the white race, however high or low, rich or poor, are equal in the eye of the law. Not so with the Negro. Subordination is his place. He, by nature, or by the curse against Canaan, is fitted for that condition which he occupies in our system. This stone, which was rejected by the first builders, is become the chief of the corner, the real cornerstone in our new edifice.
folks just repeating those words disgust me. But I wanted to deliver the speech in much the same way that Stevens might have. And when you look at the full speech, it is even worse. But that was the key section, the key important moment of what Stevens said. I would not have repeated it, but that it is vital to understand its significance here. Many Confederates would emphasize the continuity of the Confederacy with the old United States, including Jefferson Davis for his own purpose. But Alexander Stevens would have none of it. He identifies clearly that slavery and white supremacy are the fundamental purpose, really the sole purpose, of the new nation, even to the point of rejecting the ideological position of the Founding Fathers and the original American Revolution. One important area that I did trim in this context was that Stevens repeatedly invokes divine law for support, not just in passing. He does so at length, and it's clear for Stevens that African Americans must be inferior so he can enslave them. Since any logical or rational grounds might be countered by example or argument, he essentially invokes a divine mandate, or the God-said-so argument. There, at least, he could count on the support of most Southern theologians at this time. However, while his views may be detestable, the real significance is that Stevens assigns them to the Confederacy. Its goal is to enslave people and keep them there forever. That's not a byproduct. Stevens is declaring that to be the point in its entirety. This slavery is not an accident of Southern civilization or even of history, but instead Stevens claims it as a divinely inspired institution given forth to his chosen people by God. That is not an exaggeration, for although I cut out a considerable amount of repetition, here is just one single line where we could examine several. The great objects of humanity are best attained where there is conformity to his laws and decrees in the formation of government as well as in all things else. In doing so, Stevens completed the ideological transformation of slavery from a social and political problem into declaring it a foundational advantage. He wasn't the first to do so, of course. Indeed, he himself notes that such views were common as recently as 20 years back, or the 1840s, placing the change in living memory. I should also point out these views were very common among white Southerners, but they were hardly universal. Stevens, however, happily places them as the ideological basis of the Confederacy. This had the side effect of balancing on the fence just a little bit. He was able to portray the new Confederacy as both a revolutionary truth, with all the exhilaration of history-making and great events, but simultaneously merely a nominal transition, with no real need to radically alter existing society. This is, not surprisingly, an extremely congenial position for the social elite, since it promised to let them keep their slaves, power, wealth, and prestige indefinitely. It is also a clever rhetorical trick, though probably not convincing to anyone other than slaveholders. You may note that Jefferson Davis used a similar, if more muted, argument in his inaugural address. Davis was, of course, communicating to various and varied parties. But Stevens has no need to include messages for anyone other than slaveholders. Indeed, part of his goal here was to explicitly increasing support among the Upper South and border states, splitting them from the North, portraying the Confederacy as merely a better, safer form of the Union, exclusively for the slaveholding states, essentially promised everything that the powerful could want, and nothing they didn't. And of course, Note how he transforms all opposition to slavery into fanaticism, even though he himself mentions that such fanaticism was common in the South very recently. But he continues, 
Thus far, we have seen none of the incidents which usually attend revolutions. No such material as such convulsions usually throw up has been seen. Wisdom, prudence, and patriotism have marked every step of our progress thus far. This augurs well for the future, and is a matter of sincere gratification to me that I am enabled to make the declaration. Of the men I met in the Congress at Montgomery, I may be pardoned for saying this an abler, wiser, a more conservative, deliberate, determined, resolute, and patriotic body of men I never met in my life. The process of disintegration in the old Union may be expected to go on with almost absolute certainty if we pursue the right course. We are now the nucleus of a growing power which, if we are true to ourselves, our destiny, and our high mission, will become the controlling power of this continent. To what extent accessions will go on in the process of time, or where it will end, the future will determine. So far as it concerns states of the old Union, this process will be upon no principles of reconstruction as now spoken of, but upon reorganization and new assimilation." As to whether we shall have war with our late confederates, or whether all matters of differences between us shall be amicably settled, I can only say that the prospect for a peaceful adjustment is better, so far as I am informed, than it has been. The prospect of war is, at least, not so threatening as it has been. The idea of coercion, shadowed forth in President Lincoln's inaugural, seems not to be followed up thus far so vigorously as was expected. Fort Sumter, it is believed, will soon be evacuated. And here, to close out his speech, Stephen speaks with almost breathtaking blindness. First, by nature he can't admit the brutal and exploitative nature of slavery, which was more or less a state of perpetual terrorism and oppression. It's hard to say you've avoided all the evils of revolution when society was in essence paying that bloody toll daily and had been for decades, maybe centuries by now. It is only the fact that he sat comfortably atop the system that let him ignore it. Furthermore, Davis was, at this very moment, taking the first steps towards war, and it was absolutely a war that the Confederacy would start. Although they will claim to be merely acting in self-defense, the Confederacy would bombard Fort Sumter deliberately in order to cause a war, and in several instances in the future will try vainly to co-opt entire states out of their choice not to join the Confederacy. Yet in addition... We will see once the war begins in earnest that the Confederacy was no stranger to revolutionary violence and oppression, but they were unable to see it as such. Jefferson Davis will feel entirely free to engage in vicious internal repression of the free white population whenever he needed to. Coercion will begin very early in the war, and it will only grow stronger and more thorough. Of course, Alexander Stevens, at the moment he gave the speech, didn't know this, to a fair degree, he will even oppose much of the Davis administration's policy. Some of this was simply clashing egos, and some was genuine ideological differences. Yet Stephen still expresses here a childish naivete in believing that he could simply declare victory and wish away all problems. Some of this was probably a bit of marking to claim his Confederacy would experience no real troubles, but he himself bore much of the blame for the fundamental structural failures. Besides, he should have known that revolutions are far more easily started than stopped. And once begun, they often cannot be guided. They always go to where revolutionaries did not originally intend. It is in the nature of revolutions to demand more and more and more of a given society, even if that is emphatically not the intention of the people who started it. In any case, rarely has a vision of the future proven so wrong so quickly. 
In fact, in its first and only test, the Confederacy would slowly fracture and dissolve, taking with it much of the wealth of the region and leading to population decline and the deep loss of human potential. Far from a source of strength gifted by the Almighty, slavery itself would prove the complete undoing of the Confederacy. Now, there are two curious and noteworthy points to follow up regarding the Cornerstone speech itself, and both relate to this vision of the future. The first is that Stevens, in the post-war period, almost immediately began rewriting his views, at least in 1866, if not in 1865. He conveniently felt free to discard these ideas, which he was very happy to share before and during the war. As with most ex-Confederate leaders, he turned around to declare that the war was all about states' rights and purely a result of Northern aggression. Indeed, Stevens was arguably the first architect of the Lost Cause, just as he was the architect of the Confederacy. Second, historians at some points have questioned if this speech drove a rift between Alexander Stevens and Jefferson Davis. The theory goes that Davis wanted to avoid portraying the Confederacy as founded on the basis of slavery. But in reality, Davis and nearly all Confederates loudly and eagerly agreed with Stevens concerning the sanctity of slavery. Although they might reduce the visibility of that issue when dealing with foreign powers, the reality is that they could hardly deny it in the first place if they even wished to. Davis's first agents to Europe were not shy about declaring their allegiance to slavery. Furthermore, while Davis and Stevens came very quickly to cordially loathe one another, that problem lay in the future. As a final coda, you can visit today the site of the Cornerstone speech. It still exists. The Savannah Theater is, just what the name suggests, a theater. It's been in use for over two centuries. Plays and events are still held there in the city of Savannah, which itself is one of the richest historical sites in the United States. Finally, getting back on track, our next episode will examine the life of Abraham Lincoln and his experience assembling at the cabinet between his election in 1860 and his inauguration in 1861. So please join us next time. Thank you for listening to the American Civil War Podcast.